Gracious Almighty God, we praise you. We glorify you. For indeed, O oh God, you have spoken to us. And you've spoken to us through your word. And you've spoken to us most clearly through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, taught us many things about the kingdom of God. And we pray that as we look at your word this morning, as we, as we look at the serious message that Jesus told him who spoke so often of hell, we pray that we would be seeing the seriousness of hell, but that we would see the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ, of him who saves us from that very judgment. We pray, precious God, that you would, you would help us to understand your word. Help me to preach your Lord faithfully. Help me to preach your Lord according to your word and your will, not mine. And may all things be done for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this life, there are many things that come in twos. Male, female, day, night, left foot, right foot, up, down, forward, backward. But there are also many things that come in varieties or shades, shades of grey between, between a black and a white. And yet in the Bible, when it comes to eternal realities, there are just twos. Heaven, hell, creator, creation, God's people, God's enemies, Jew, Gentile, lost, found, eternal life, eternal destruction. And in this parable that Jesus tells, there are two categories of people and two ultimate ends. Good fish, bad fish, kept or thrown away. And whichever kind of fish you are makes all the difference for eternity. Because many are gathered into God's kingdom, but only those who are truly saved will be kept. So as we look at these verses that Jesus tells, he, he tells the parable of the net or the dragnet. And we will see that there are two main points in there. That there's, there is a great summoning that Jesus talks about. And then there's a great separation that will follow that. So have a look with me. First, the great summoning, verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. See, here the kingdom of God is compared to a net or a dragnet which was used with fishing. And as I was saying in the, in the children's talk, it would be, it would be tied between, often between two boats and sometimes just with one boat. And it would be used and it would be dragged along behind the boats. Now on this net, there were often weights set on the bottom of that net so that it would, it would drag along the bottom of the ocean so that nothing could escape. And there would be corks often on the top so that it would float and it would span uh, the depth of the water. And it was designed for a very specific purpose, to catch fish. It was designed to catch fish. It wasn't designed to, to do anything else. It wasn't designed to just sit there and look pretty. But no, it was designed to catch fish. And not just because they felt like it, but because people's livelihoods depended on it. And in Jesus' days, some of his disciples even were fishermen. And as each parable that Jesus tells looks, looks at a different aspect of the kingdom of God here, the kingdom of God is represented as a net. Now, the net gathers all kinds of fish. And in the very same way, 
here, the net imagery refers to the catching, not of fish, but of people. It refers to the great gathering of people from all different backgrounds, all different nations for salvation. How is this done? Well, it's done as the gospel goes forth. It is done through evangelism. It is done through the preaching of the word. It is done as the message of God, the good news, the gospel, is cast out there into the world. When others are told the message, message of salvation, they are brought into the visible kingdom of God. And notice there it says fish of all kinds, all kinds of fish. When the gospel is preached, it draws in every kind of person, rich, poor, important, unimportant, old, young, smart, not as smart, important, unknown, male, female, Indian, Chinese, Anglo, whatever kind, the gospel brings in all kinds of fish. And the first natural implication of this is that the gospel must be proclaimed. A net left on the shore does absolutely nothing. It does absolutely nothing if it is unthrown. The gospel left unspoken, mouths shut, or even opened only to speak of everything but Christ and the gospel is useless for the kingdom. A net unthrown is useless. A gospel untold is useless. A net unthrown is useless. A, gus a gospel untold is useless. It's like a, a pen with no ink. Do we like to keep pens with no ink? Maybe if it's an expensive pen, but generally speaking, no. It's like a violin with no strings. It doesn't work. It's useless. So the first implication of this parable is that the net must be thrown. The gospel must be told. We must bring the gospel, that which has brought us into the kingdom, we must bring that to others. And the next implication of this is who we are to tell. Who are we to tell? Well, notice again, it's all kinds of fish. We're not to select the different kinds of people that we're to bring the gospel to and say the gospel is only for this kind of people. The gospel is only for the elite or even the gospel is only for the poor and those who are simple. No, the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is not, is not above everyone. The gospel is for every single person. There is no one out there who is too good for the gospel, which is impossible. There's no one who is too bad for the gospel, for indeed that was what the gospel is for. That is who the gospel is for. The gospel is for every single person. Have you told anyone the gospel recently? Is your desire, your earnest desire to see others saved, to see, see the message of the gospel go out and bring people in to the kingdom, to see others captivated by the gospel of Christ? Do you hold it back from anyone in particular? Maybe you think they, they wouldn't want it. That they wouldn't want the gospel. They're too hard. Or maybe they don't need it. They're fine. They're, they're pretty good. No, everyone needs the gospel. And we must tell it to everyone. 
Another thing that's important to note is that we don't choose who is brought in by that net. We don't choose who is brought in by that net. The fishermen have no control over what their net brings in, largely speaking. They can try and, and, and drag the net in a particular area. They might, 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 as be, might be known for a, a good type of fish. But in reality, they've got no choice. They've got no choice. They drag the net behind their um, boat, hoping to pick up fish. They can't pick and choose when they're dragging the net. And sometimes they catch a small amount of fish. And sometimes they catch a great load of fish because God is sovereign over which fish and which people are caught. Turn with me to to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. If you've got one of those pew Bibles and one of the black Bibles, it's page page 1019, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. In this parable, sorry, in this story, this account, this true account of, of, of Jesus and these, and these fishermen, these fishermen had been toiling for all night and they'd caught absolutely nothing. Nothing. No fish. Yet when Jesus, who wasn't an experienced fisherman like they were, asked them to cast out their net onto the other side of the boat, they must have been thinking to themselves, what on earth is this man talking about? What is he talking about? And you can kind of hear it in the tone of Peter there. He says, Master, we've been working hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you've, sorry, pardon me, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And we see here something commendable in Peter in the sense that he obeys what Christ says. And yet in there, there is this this note of, of, of despair And yet when they do what Jesus has said, when they let down their nets on the other side of the boat, which you would think in one sense isn't that that far from the other side of the boat, they catch a boatload of fish. And in fact, it's more than a boatload of fish because their boats start to sink. Surely they had just gone through those waters. Surely they had just let down their nets. Maybe they'd tried different sides already and Jesus had told them this and suddenly they'd catch such a large amount of fish in their nets. Why? Because Jesus is sovereign over who gets caught in the nets. Have a look with me still at that same passage, down to verse 10. 
Jesus says these words. Sorry, yeah, verse 10. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And Jesus was pointing out something here. These men had dedicated their entire lives. In fact, that was, that was the way that they, that, that was their livelihood to catch fish. And yet Jesus says here, from now on you will catch men. Not with a physical net. But what did Jesus do? He sent them out to proclaim the gospel. The glorious gospel of his grace. Is this the great aim of our church? Is this the great aim of Jermoyne Baptist? To see people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to come into this church from outside, to see people be caught by the net, to be, see people get caught by the preaching of the gospel, to, be, to see people get caught as we, as we tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this the great aim of this church? It is for the glory of God and it's for the glory of Christ and for the good of others. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28? He says, we are to go and make disciples of all nations. This was his great, it's called the Great Commission. This is the mandate for the church. We gather to worship and we, we evangelize, we, we scatter to evangelize. And we love to, to, to invite them to church and to bring them in that they might hear the word of God explained and preached. Otherwise, how can they hear it? How can they hear of the Lord Jesus Christ? In Mark 13, 10, Jesus says the gospel must be first proclaimed to all nations. It must be proclaimed. There's no other option. And this is not just in the New Testament. This is not just from the lips of Christ. But it's in the Old Testament as well. Just to give you one passage in Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2, it says, May God be gracious to us. And bless us and make his face to shine upon us. And this was, this was Israel. Why did they want God to be gracious to them? Why did they want his face to shine upon him? For, for, for God to bless them? The next words, it says, That your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all the nations. Is this our desire that God would bless us so that his way and his word and his saving power might be made known among all the nations? Why do we pray that God would bless us and give us grace? That Christ would be known among the nations. That Christ would be known even here in Jermoyne, even as Joel was praying before. That God would work a mighty revival on the hearts of everyone here in Jermoyne. That they would hear of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they would come into his kingdom, that they would be gathered by that net, a great summoning of people into God's kingdom. That is the mission of his church. That is the mission of this church. But next we will note there's a great separation. Because even as I was saying in the children's talk, the fish are gathered, but the net is no good just left in the ocean with a whole lot of fish. But no, it is drawn ashore. Have a look with me uh, back in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verses 48 to 50. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets and threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. 
The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not only is there a great gathering and summoning of God's, uh, sorry, of the fish, but they are separated from each other when they're brought into shore. And notice when they're separated, there are only two groups, only two groups. And at that word there in verse 48, when the net was full, that word there means full, it means complete, it means it's often used in the Bible as fulfilled, i.e. the time has come. And there will be a time coming when God's patience will run out. In Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11, God says that his word will not return to him unsuccessful but will accomplish everything that he has sent it out for. And there is a time when God will stop sending out his word. There is a time when, when Christ will return, when it will be full. It will be complete. It will be done. And what happens? This net is drawn ashore and they are sorted, the good into containers, right, into baskets. But notice what happens to the bad. They are thrown away. They're not just thrown into another container. They're thrown away. In Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, we see that there are the laws that, that, that God lays out for, for his people at that time, the Jews. And the Jews in the Old Testament were familiar with, with separating different kinds of fish. Because in Deuteronomy 14, it says the unclean were to be separated from the clean fish. And whatever, whatever had fins and scales, they were allowed to eat. But whatever didn't have fins and scales... They weren't to eat. It was unclean for them. There were good fish and there were bad fish. There were clean fish and there were unclean. There were desirable fish and there were undesirable fish. And as I said before, while the net was in the water, it was mixed. And in the same way, when the church is in the world as it is now, it is mixed. There's another parable that Jesus tells earlier in this chapter about the parables of the weeds or the tares and the wheat. And there's a wheat field that, 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 that we see that, that, that God plants. But the devil sows in weeds or tares and they, and they grow up among the wheat. And it has many comparisons to this parable that we're currently looking at now. And, and you can look at that later. But what these parables are saying is that in the midst of a church, of a visible church, there will be those in that church who are not truly saved. Amidst all the fish that are gathered in by the preaching of the gospel, gathered in as we tell people about Jesus, there will be those who do not truly love Jesus, do not truly trust in Jesus Christ. They may have a profession of faith. They may say that they follow Christ. But they do not truly possess Faith. They may have a profession of faith, but not a possession of true faith. They may have, what the Bible says, an appearance of godliness while denying its very power because they do not have the Spirit of God in them. They might even look, in some respects, like good fish. They might even, to the, to the casual observer, they might even look like good fish. And yet God knows the hearts of every single person here, every single person in this world and in the professing church. And God knows those who are his and those who are not his. And if that is you here this morning, if you are here and, and, and you're coming to church, and maybe you've been coming to church for a long time, 
but you realize that actually you were not a good fish. And I will get to what that means in a second. If you realize that you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, do not live in this happy ignorance. Do not live in this happy ignorance of, of, of dwelling among God's people while you are, are, trying to, are trying to stay under the radar and trying to keep your head down and, and keep up appearances and, and, and make sure that no one actually notices that, that, that you're not saved. Don't go along for the ride hoping, hoping that, that, that maybe God will be kind to you because you, you go to church or you've added him onto your life. Keeping up appearances cannot save. Keeping up appearances cannot save. Being among God's visible people cannot save you. Cannot save you. But in heaven, there will be no weeds among the wheat. There will be, there will be no bad fish among the good fish. There will be the true church and the, only the true church. Why? Because the good are kept in baskets, but the bad are thrown away. There are two kinds of people, two kinds of fish. And it's the same throughout the whole Bible. There are two kinds of people. And often the, the words used are the, the, the evil or the wicked and the righteous. The wicked and the righteous. Psalm 1 verse 7 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 7 verse 9 says, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. Oh, you who test the minds and hearts, O oh, righteous God. Proverbs 3 verse 33 says, The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. So we see here there are two types, two types of people, that the wicked and the righteous. But doesn't the Bible also say that in, in, in Romans 3 and elsewhere, that, that no one is righteous. No, not one. So how can it be that any are righteous? That should confuse us. How can it be that any are righteous? In Romans 3, that very passage that says, no one is righteous, no, not one, it says down in verse 20, it says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified or declared righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Well, what does that say? It says that it cannot come through any effort on our part. It cannot be done by keeping the law. For all the law does is it shows us our sin. All the law does is it shows us that we're bad fish. We're wicked and we're evil. But verse 21 and 22 offers this. You've got the law then. You've got this, this gospel promise that comes straight after the law, which, which says that you are condemned. We've, we've got the law and we've got grace. We've got We've got the gospel coming through and it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Notice those words there. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In Roman Catholicism, a works-based system is taught. And righteousness, righteousness there is infused in you as, you as you partake in the sacraments. But as Martin Luther in the Reformation 500 years ago realized as, as, as the Spirit of God showed him from his word, from the word of God, it's a righteousness that, 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 is not, that, does, that it can't be earned. It, it can't be done by keeping the sacraments. 
or keeping penance or, or, or through being baptized as an infant or whatever it is that you do to, to, to gain merit or try and gain merit vainly before God. But no, it's a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. A righteousness that is, that is counted to our account. It is imputed, it is transferred to our account through faith and faith alone. To be righteous, to be righteous before God, to be one of these good fish does not come through what we do. There is nothing inherently good in those fish that commended them to God. That they would, be, they would be set apart in containers. There's nothing in them that commended them to be put and set, set apart in those containers. But it is the righteousness of Christ, a righteousness from God that is counted as theirs when they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6, it says, Behold, the days are coming. And this is a prophecy of Christ. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. This is, this is Christ that this is speaking of. He has merited a perfect righteousness before God by his perfect obedience to God. In the great hymn, my hope is built on nothing less. It ends with these words. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. In him my righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Are these the words on your lips? The Lord is my righteousness. Are these the words that you speak, that when, when you stand before God in heaven, if you were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven, would you say, the Lord is my righteousness? Or would you say, I tried to be a good fish? I tried to be a good fish. But for those who have not trusted in God, they're designated as those who are evil. They're designated as those who are wicked. Verse 49 says, the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. In Genesis 6 verse 5, it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that wasn't just applying to that time then, but it applies to our very time now. Sometimes we hear sin mentioned so much and, and maybe passed over lightly that we lose sight of how disgusting and how wicked sin is. But when you start to use the words evil and start to use the words wicked for sin, it brings out an extra dimension to sin. It shows us the, the true nature of sin, the true ugliness of sin. It's not just some bad things that we do that are just, we, can, we can treat as nothing and just pass over. No, we, we are wicked before God and evil. 
We are not born morally neutral. Instead, all of mankind are born with their hearts desiring wickedness, desiring this sin. We are born sin lovers and God haters. Even if people do not seem like they're shaking their fist at God, their hearts do not want the true God to rule over them. They are self-righteous. They are self-dependent. Indeed, the Bible says in Job that evil is natural to us as, as, as much as we drink water. It says this, What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, his angels, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less... How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. What Job is saying is that it is a man's nature to be impure, to be unrighteous. We are abominable and corrupt by nature. We are in one of two categories. We are either the good fish or the bad fish. We are either the wicked or the righteous. The thing is we are either in Adam or we were in Christ. In Adam, with the guilt of his first sin, the lack of original righteousness, and the corruption of our whole nature. Or we were in Christ, with his innocence and his righteousness, and the purity and perfection of his whole nature. In our account. And the Puritan Thomas Goodwin imagines two giants standing before God. And I want you to imagine now two giants standing before God. And they are Adam and they are Christ. One is Adam and one is Christ. And they each represent two groups of people. And each giant has a large belt around his waist. And from this belt there are hooks. And from these hooks there are, there are hung people. People hanging from these hooks. And there aren't more than two belts. There are only two belts. You are either hooked onto Adam or you're hooked onto Christ. On Adam's belt, there are those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. But on Christ's belt, there are those who have been justified through faith. They are reckoned evil if they're hooked onto Adam, and they're reckoned righteous if they're hooked onto Christ. And in salvation, what God does is he unhooks us from Adam's belt, which we are by nature. We are helpless. We're just hanging from that belt. And yet God unhooks us from Adam's belt and he hooks us onto the belt of Christ where we are safe, where we are kept. We are not thrown away. And so I ask you this morning, where are you? Where are you? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Are you hooked on to Adam by nature or have you been hooked on to Christ? through faith in him and by God's almighty work. Have a look with me at the end. What will happen to those who are wicked and to the righteous? It says the wicked are separated from the righteous and God will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice here that the angels come from God and they, and they separate the evil from the righteous. They don't just separate them from each other, but they separate and they take away the evil from the righteous. Because God is saying, my kingdom is for my people. And he's separating the evil from the righteous. The wheat stays, the chaff is blown away. 
You even, you even caught a hint of that in, in one of the verses from Isaiah 13. It says the wicked are like, are like the chaff that easily blows away. It's like the morning dew that passes quickly. It's like the, the smoke that goes out of a window and it's gone. It's like the smoke of a candle that you blow it out and you, you see it at first, but then it just, poof, it's gone. They will be removed from God's people. Psalm 5, verse 4 and 5 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Evil cannot dwell with God. It cannot be in his presence forever. And where are they consigned? It says they're consigned to the fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And a fiery furnace is used here to evoke ideas of what hell is like. And when you've gone out, even even in the heat of a 40 degree day like like yesterday, for any length of time, it is hard to to think and it, it saps your energy. And the sun burns down upon you. And if a fire were to burn you, it's misery, it's, it's sore, it's, it's burning. And fire out of control can be terrifying. And Jesus uses this picture here to say, wake up, wake up. Let me tell you, the fiery furnace of hell will be inflicting pain and misery and burning. It will be terrifying and it will never, ever end. That is why there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because of the misery and the anguish and because the pain is so unbearable. And as I see the sin of my own heart, I see that is exactly what I deserve. That is exactly what I deserve and that is what you deserve by nature as well. Because God is so good that to sin against him, this is what it deserves. He's so infinitely pure that to sin against him, this is what it deserves. And God must punish sin. In Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar heats up a burning, fiery furnace so hot, so hot that when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are thrown into it for not worshipping a golden image of King Nebuchadnezzar, the flame of that very fire, of that fiery furnace, killed the men. The mighty men, it says, who were throwing them in. It just killed them like that. And yet the heat of the fiery furnace of hell is infinitely hotter. Infinitely hotter. But the thing is, it will not kill those who are in it. It will not annihilate the wicked. No, they will experience it to the full. Robert Murray McShane said this, It is the nature of fire to consume, so it is with the fire of hell, but it will never annihilate the damned. Oh, it is a fire that will never be quenched. Even the burning volcanoes will cease to burn. And that sun that now sweetly shines upon us will cease to burn. And that very fire that is to burn up the elements at the end of the age will be quenched, will be gone. But this fire will never be quenched. If you are not saved here this morning, if you are trusting in your own self-righteousness, if you are trusting in your own works, then in reality the Bible calls you evil and this is your end. This is your end, a fiery furnace and, and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, I take no pleasure in telling you this except that you be saved and you turn away from your sin. 
If your house were burning, it would be love to warn you to get out. It would be love to warn you to get out of that very house. And so if you look in your heart here this morning and you were not saved, if you were not saved, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He offers forgiveness of sins. He offers pardon. He offers um, an escape from this. He's a refuge. He says, turn and live. Turn and live. And he will receive you if you come to him with faith. Would you gain the whole world but lose your very soul? Maybe you're here this morning and you, you laugh at what I'm saying. Or you do not take seriously the judgment of God. Be warned. Be warned. You will not be laughing or treating God lightly on judgment day. For those of you here who may be anxious, what a mercy from God that he, that he is pricking your conscience, that he is awakening you to flee from this fiery furnace. What a mercy from God to be awakened to this Flee to Christ. See how precious Christ is. That he's a refuge from sin. That he's a refuge from this fiery furnace. And for those of you who are saved, realize that this is what Christ bore on the cross. This is what Christ bore on that cross. He did not just die a physical death, but this is what he bore on the cross for us, a fiery furnace When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is what is experienced in hell. The forsakenness of God. The curse of God. And I want you to think about that if you are saved this morning, as many of us are. You've been saved from this fiery furnace. You have been saved for this. You have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. God's people will never suffer in heaven. They will never suffer in the new heavens and the new earth. Their portion and end is life and heaven and peace. In the parable that is so like it, the parable of the, the, of, of the tares or the weeds and the wheat, in verse 43 it says, what the, that verse 42 is what happened to the wicked, which is exactly the same as this parable. But in verse 43, it says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the glory of their Father. They will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. They will shine in glory. This should make us profoundly thankful. What grace and love there is in God that he would save us, that he would save us from this end, that he would choose us, that he would draw us with his great net of his, of his gospel, the gospel of his grace, that he would draw us into his kingdom and that he would give us a righteousness that is from Christ, meditating on hell, should make Christians sober-minded and serious, but it should make them eternally thankful, eternally thankful. And it should make us more earnest to see others saved from that. 
It should make us more earnest in our prayers. It should make us more earnest in our evangelism. If there is a world that does not know Jesus, there is a world that, 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 that is without Christ and without hope in this world and in the next, they are bad fish who will be thrown away. Friends, this should make us earnest to tell others that they would be saved from this end. Praise be to God for his mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are worthy of all glory and honour and praise. For Lord, even though we were destined for wrath by our very nature, even though we were children of wrath, as the Bible says, in your mercy and your grace, in your goodness and loving kindness, you gave us your Son. And Lord, you, you, you poured out hell, you poured out this fiery furnace on your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, that we might have hope, that we might have a righteousness, that we might be considered and reckoned before you good fish, righteous in your sight, not because of what we've done, we have done, but because we are in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, I pray here this morning for those who do not know you. Lord, even though these truths may make them uncomfortable, Lord, I pray that indeed you would awaken their hearts, that they would flee, not away from you, trying to push down these truths. But they would see, Lord, because you show them. Help them to see, your oh God, the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the only saviour of sinners and the only saviour from the wrath to come. Oh, blessed God, thank you so much for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessing and glory and honour and praise to you, Lord Jesus. For you, by your blood, you have redeemed us from our sin. We praise you and pray these things in your blessed name. Amen.